Good morning, Victor Outreach Inglewood. I am so glad you are with us here this morning uh, on this beautiful Sunday morning. We are uh, making plans uh, this month in the upcoming month of November to begin thinking about uh, us gathering in our sanctuary. And so we'll be giving you more information. I just will be meeting with some of our leaders, talking some things over, making some final preparations for that. Uh, but to continue to live stream our services to you, for those of you uh, who uh, have to stay at home for various reasons, uh, we care about you as well and your safety. Um, but we also would love to gather again in our sanctuary and worship the Lord here in this uh, beautiful place that he's given us. And so uh, we'll be giving you more information in the very near future. So, amen. Look forward to that uh, as I'm looking forward to that. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. And I'm just excited this morning. I'm excited. I've been excited all week. Very busy. Busy week for me, but super excited. Um, I, I just love the Lord. I love what He's been showing me. God's been showing me so many great things. And, uh, and I can share with you just a piece of one of the things that uh, God has been sharing with me this week here in this story. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 33. This is what it says. I'm reading from the New International Version. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, we need a word from heaven. We need to hear from you. We ask this morning that you would speak to us, Father God, with your, with your voice that is ever present with us, whether we are gathered here in the sanctuary or, that, or whether we're at home. Lord, you know how to reach us, how to speak to us. And so bring clarity to your word and have your way in our lives, my God. We pray, we thank you this morning for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, God's people say, amen, amen. You know, we're living in a very, very interesting time. I'm excited because the L.A. Lakers just won the NBA Finals. And not only that, the L.A. Dodgers just won the World Series. And I have great hopes and expectations for the Los Angeles Rams, uh, but we can discuss that at another time. Um, but, you know, it's a great feeling when your favorite sports team does well. The entire city celebrates, and, we're, and we've been seeing that. The entire city celebrating. Sports does that. Sports builds bridges sometimes where there are no bridges. It closes the divide that separates people. And, and it's a beautiful thing. Sports does that. But at the heart of sports is competition. And sometimes, even though sports can be joyful and fun and friendly, uh, it's not always true of competition. It's not always joyful, fun, and, and friendly. Competition can be destructive. It often brings up feelings of pride, of, of rivalry, even contention, where there are ill feelings with those that you compete against. Competition is what creates rival nations. It's what creates rival businesses, rival neighborhoods, even rival friends. 
those that used to love one another become enemies because of competition. When you think about it, everything in nature competes. You know, and I began to think about how that's true. Trees and plants, they compete for sun and water, especially when sunlight and water are scarce. Animals compete for food and, and survival, even in the spirit world, or especially in the spirit world. When you think about warfare and how spiritual warfare is hostile competition, the same thing, not a friendly competition, but more hostile, where there is life and death in the balance. And we fight against principalities, against powers. You know, I was reading in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 32, a fascinating scripture. As I was reading through it, it the writer was trying to remind the people there that he was writing to uh, about how they used to fight for their faith, how they fought for it. It was a life and death struggle. And he's trying to remind them, to spark them into this idea of contending for fighting for what they knew was right. And he says this, he says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in the great contest in the face of suffering. And that word contest in, in the Greek is athlesis, athlesis, which refers to a sporting event, to compete, right? It's synonymous with athletics, right? It's like a sport. It's competition. It means struggle or fight, like the life or death struggle of a gladiator in the arena with an opponent that's trying to take his life. Right. This is what the writer had in mind. He's thinking about a gladiator who competes to live. Do you remember when you fought for your faith that way? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. See, competition, it, it generates fierce uh, emotions, competitiveness, staunch loyalties. It creates a passion within a person, especially when the stakes are high. To compete is to contend to struggle, to overtake an opponent, to win simply by, by, by sheer dominance. That's what competition is all about. Competition ruined a brotherhood in the book of Genesis between Cain and Abel. In fact, Abel lost his life because of a competitive spirit. Once, once Cain found out that God favored the offering of his brother, and it left Abel without his lifeblood flowing through his veins. The very first recorded example of competitive rivalry was when Lucifer was striving to sit on a throne that wasn't his. When he des desired God's throne and he felt in his heart that, man, I, I can have that throne. I can take that throne. And God threw him out of heaven. Right? Competition. In our day and age, sports and competition are a huge part of our social makeup. It's, it's just, uh, you know, a part of, of who we are and, and what we do. Our, our children compete in sports. We have uh, colleges, our colleges, we, we compete in sports. We have professional competitions in sports, not to mention, uh, you know, every form of game. You know, whether it's from jacks, you know, handball to whatever it is, Every game is competitive. 
It is, it is between two rivals, whether it's board games or video games or whatever kind of game. People compete and competition lies at the very root of everything that happens in this world. Not to mention that we're in an election year. You think about that. And competition is the driving force between the rivalries between various parties, you know, that are, are striving for a single goal. Who will come out on top? Who has the best platform? Wh who makes the most compelling argument? And they come at each other in very aggressive ways, right? Competition that is fierce, that is relentless. So whether it's a game of jacks, or an election, or a disputed border between two rival nations, whatever it is, competition lies at the heart of the struggle. And it can be anything from friendly and fun to fatal. Here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus had just taken three of his disciples to the top of a mountain, Mount Tabor. He took them there to be alone with God, to talk with God. He took Peter James and John. And this is where Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. His clothing changed brighter than light. They began to glow. His whole countenance was changed right before their eyes. And not only did God speak to them, but Moses showed up and Elijah showed up and they began to speak with Jesus. It was an amazing, an amazing event. And it must have been a huge shot of ego to the men that Jesus took with him, the three disciples, right? A badge of honor, a, a, a special privilege that, that not all of the disciples had. Just these three, was a, they were able to experience this, this wonderful, glorious experience. And they couldn't wait to get back down the mountain to tell everybody else, to boast about what they had seen and heard, that Jesus didn't take any of you guys, he took us. He took us, right? He, he called us. We're privileged. We're called to a higher, a higher existence, a higher uh, responsibility, a, a greater mission than the rest of you guys. Called to a higher level of living, a higher level of discipleship, right? We're not just the average disciples. We're elite disciples. But Jesus told them, hey, you know, keep this to yourselves. You don't have to share this with anybody. Nobody needs to know this. Just keep it to yourselves, right? This is what he tells them as they were coming down. And just as they arrive at the base of the mountain, they found the other nine disciples arguing with the teachers of the law. A father had brought his little boy to the disciples because he was possessed by a demon. And he asked the disciples if they could cast the demon out of his son. And they tried and tried, all nine of them, but they could not cast the demon out. And, and the, the crowds began to gather and the teachers of the law began to mock and, and argue with them about you know, their uh, authority, perhaps, uh, their ability to cast this demon out because they clearly could not drive this demon out. And this was probably what it was that sparked this argument between the mountaintop disciples and the disciples in the valley. Those who came from an experience of success, an experience of rapture, an experience of glory, and those 
who experienced failure down in the valley, who struggled with the ministry of deliverance. They didn't experience the success that the others had experienced on the mountaintop. For those on the mountaintop, there were feelings of superiority that began to emerge inside of them, feelings of greatness, that we've, we've been places that you haven't been. We've seen things that you haven't seen. And those who were unsuccessful at casting out a demon, there were feelings of inferiority, of failure. They even asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus gives them an answer. Now, I'll share that answer in just a moment. But they were concerned about it. They thought about it. And as they walked back to Capernaum, right, for the next five hours of walking, they thought about this. And the disciples talked about this. And the conversation escalated into an argument. And it's pretty clear that Jesus wasn't in on the conversation because the, the, the disciples, you know, kind of separated themselves. And it wasn't until they finally arrived back at the house that they were headed to that Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about there on the road? And verse 34 says, but they kept quiet. Nobody dared to answer Jesus because their argument was about who among them was the greatest, right? Competition had crept into the disciples. Who was the greatest among them? Who is the elite disciple, the greatest out of the 12? This is perhaps one of the biggest problems in the world today. And I'll repeat that. This is probably one of the biggest problems in the world today. This is definitely the, the, the whole uh, uh, motivation behind the Antichrist. This sense of superiority greater than the Christ himself. The elite superiority, right? One of the greatest problems in the world, even and including the church. Feelings of superiority where people elevate themselves so high that they can no longer offer the basic human dignity and respect to their fellow man, to their fellow woman, rival or not, to respect others, to love others, to care for others. It can happen in sports where we flaunt our success and taunt our rival. It can happen in politics. It can happen even amongst the disciples as we read about here in this story, whether it was Peter and James and John or all 12 of them involved in the argument, they knew that, it, that this was wrong. What are you arguing about? Something so selfish, something so self-centered about. And they knew it was wrong. That's why they kept Jesus out. And this is why they were so embarrassed to answer Jesus when he asked about it. While a father was fighting for the life of his son, while a father was, was you know, going through changes because of his son and his son's demon possession, the disciples were fighting over superiority. Who's the best? Who's the strongest? Who is the smartest, the most talented, the most able? Right? This is what they were concerned about, competing for a title, competing for recognition. This is where their fight was. Their fight wasn't against the demon that had that boy's life consumed. Their fight wasn't for the father who needed help, who needed support. Their fight was for superiority, for greatness. 
all of their passion, all of their concern, all of their struggle was for who was the best, right? It was all about self. It was all about self-sufficiency. Not against the forces of darkness, not against the curse of disbelief, but over who's the best, over recognition and respect. So the things that should happen and should take place will never get done because the people who can make things happen are fighting to be great. With leaders like this, the church will be in serious trouble. You know, two of the greatest lessons that Jesus taught his disciples had to do with humility and love. But competition reversed everything that he had taught them. Rather than humility, there was pride. And rather than love, there was discord, animosity, a sense of contention against each other as rivals. Jesus tells us that wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in their midst. But it seems as though competition makes the same claim that wherever two or more are gathered without Christ, competition will be in their midst, instigating, insinuating, prompting one to stand out against the other. But it's not just superiority that became their problem. There was also the feelings of self-sufficiency. You had the mountaintop disciples, the, the great success uh, experiencing disciples, and then you had the valley disciples, those who relied on self, those who were prayerless in their attempt to try and help this father, were people who are so self-absorbed that they don't need God. They don't pray. They don't need God. So there were two things that stood in the way of the disciples on this day. Pride and prayerlessness. Pride has a way of extinguishing compassion. It's the posture of the heart that keeps a person from loving, that keeps a person for, from, for caring for others because they're so caught up loving themselves. Pride turns our eyes away from others back towards ourselves. The Bible tells us that if any man desires to be first, he shall definitely be last. And those that exalt themselves will be humble. Pride keeps us from hearing people, but prayerlessness keeps us from hearing God. If only the disciples down on the valley would have prayed, would have talked to God, God would have given them the answer. God would have given them the breakthrough. God would have healed this little boy. He would have proven his power in the lives of humble people, people relying on God. But they were self-sufficient. And Jesus had to tell them, hey, this kind only comes out when you talk to God, when you pray. The disciples were concerned about why they couldn't help that father. Why couldn't we help him drive out this demon? And Jesus says, man, you need to pray. Stop being so self-centered, so self-sufficient, right? It's only when your relationship with God is vibrant and rich, when you talk to him and he talks to you, that you're able to do incredible things for the kingdom. People may be asking the same question today. Why can't we heal the hurt? Why can't we cast out the demon? Why can't we change things in the cities that we live in? It takes double listening. It takes double listening, connecting with God in prayer, but also connecting with people 
through humility. In verse 35, here in this, in this chapter, it says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. You know, rather than Jesus telling the disciples what they needed to know, Jesus showed the disciples what they needed to be. And he showed them a little child, humble and dependent. This is the cure of a powerless church, humility and dependency, being powerful because we're connected to God in prayer. We're connected to God in prayer, but we're connected to people through our humble attitude. When you become like that, Jesus says, then you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. I want to pray for us. You know, each week we have tons of prayer requests, not just for our families, but for our city, for our nation. Oh, man, we need we need prayer just this week. We're going to be praying for uh, the future of our nation for the next four years. We want to get it right as right as we can get it. We want to pray. We want to pray for you. We want to pray for our, our families, those that we know and love, those that are sick. And, and we want the power to see God move in powerful ways. So pray with me this morning. Father God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Father, for exposing to us, even, my God, those difficult times in the disciples' lives, those times, my God, of failure, those times of mistake, those times, my God, where pride began to creep in through competition and rivalry. Father God, where you show the church in a light that is not as glamorous as we would like it to be. But we thank you, Father God, for revealing to us so that we may make the corrections in our lives so that we can be powerful in our time and age. Father, I pray your anointing upon us. I pray for our families. I pray for our children. I pray for our cities. I pray for our nation, Father God. I pray for, my God, those that have cried out to you for help, Lord. I pray that you would move by your power. I pray, help us to rise up, my God, to be the people that you've called us to be. Humble, my God. Oh, God, that we would be people that are dependent upon you. My God, I pray your a fresh anointing be poured out upon us, a fresh anointing from heaven. Have your way in our lives. Meet us, speak to us. Do a work, my God, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people say, amen, amen. Well, this morning, I certainly hope that the Lord spoke to you. Uh, he's definitely been speaking to me. And, uh, you know, contact us. I'd like to hear from you. We want to pray for you this week. I look forward to seeing you in Bible study and prayer. So God bless you. Have a great week.